got your Bible, would you open to Genesis, Genesis chapter 16? Verses 1 through 16. Now, I'll give you a moment. Okay. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. The word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord. All right, the dysfunction of a family is beginning to take full effect. We have the, we are in a story of, story of Genesis, particularly focusing on Abraham and what it's like for a person to walk in faith, and Abraham's our model of that. He's not a model of a perfect man. Neither is anyone in this, this story or any of the stories. Genesis is not a story about moral people who we should follow their examples at all points. There's one man who we should follow his example at all points, but it isn't Abraham. This is one of those stories, nor his wife, nor Hagar. So let's, uh, let's take a little running jump back into this. We have Abram, who is called out of a land that he didn't know where he was going to be heading, out of the land he knew, into a promised land that he wasn't sure. When he gets there, he's told, this land is going to be yours. And he says, how? And God says, just do it. I'll tell you later, right? Going to have a son. How, Lord? Just do it. Just wait. 
I'll tell you later how it's going to happen, and on and on and on. This life of faith, we want to know what's coming, don't we, right? Sorry, the life of faith says you walk according to the light God's given you. Sometimes you know a bit in advance, but sometimes you don't. So what we have is about a 10-year gap. The Bible doesn't tell us everything because we have about a 10-year gap that we don't know what happened in their lives, but what it does tell us is important. So in chapter 16, what we do know in this somewhere around 10 years, we know that because he's 75 when he leaves uh, the land to come to the promised land, and we know now in this chapter he's about 85. Um, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So 10 more years. Now, had he been promised a child? Yes, we know from the last chapter he'd been promised a child. And he made it clear it wasn't going to come because a servant was going to become, as was the custom in that day, for a childless couple to pass their worldly goods on through a trusted servant who they would adopt. That wasn't the way it was going to happen. He said, it's going to be from you. So, ten years goes on. Now, let me ask you this question. This, as the story starts, had God been unfaithful to his promise? Yes or no? From their perspective, just to have a little compassion here, those of you who've told me it's tough to wait a week, <laughs> Saul couldn't wait a week to have the sacrifice done, right? He, in, in, uh, we know in 1 Samuel 13 that he wants to have a sacrifice, and he couldn't wait a week before he was pronouncing the sacrifice because Samuel hadn't shown up. Saul's waiting was about a week, a month. Maybe you feel like God's given you some promise. A year? You know, he promised you, you know, I'll, I'll, we'll get married, or we'll have children, or, or that relationship will be restored, or that something, will, two years? But at what point do you think God becomes unfaithful to his promise? It's, it's an honest question, right? Well, we know from this side God's never unfaithful to his promise. But it can sure seem like that on this side. It can. And so what we have here is Sarai saying something that's both, from her perspective, both true and incredibly false at the same time. Sarai says to Abram in verse 2, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. True or not true? True. 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 But what's the implication she comes to is that God hasn't kept up his end of the bargain. That's the false implication. She could have easily have said, I haven't had children yet. God's prevented me because he's still preparing me to be a mom. We know she's 75 at this point. Maybe she thinks she's not ready. I didn't think I was ready to be a dad at 35 or whenever we started having children. Maybe, maybe she could have looked at it and said, God, you're still preparing me. There's two ways to look at a waiting period. And I have some compassion on the fact that 10 years for her maybe seemed like God's character was in doubt that he would fulfill his promise. It can seem that way. But we have the choice to let our interpretation of a difficult situation redefine God's character and say, well, since you didn't come through God, we've got to take plan B. Or you have the choice to say, God's character stands firm. Lord, what do I need to do in the waiting time while I'm waiting to see you come through? 
So is she right or is she wrong? Well, ultimately, it's her perspective that takes her down this road because in their culture, barrenness was seen as a sign of God's curse. Having children was seen as a sign of God's blessing. We'll see that coming in the Hagar story and the attitude. So they interpreted the way their culture did, and we wish they could rise above it just the way we wish we could rise above our culture, but sometimes we see things and we're tainted by the way our culture sees them. But the Lord had only prevented her from having children because the blessing was not quite halfway there. You realize 25 years are going to pass from the time the promise is made until the time the promise is fulfilled. She's going to be 90. Can I just tell you, 25 years is a long time to wait. It is for me anyway. But God's timing was absolutely perfect. There's this phrase the Bible uses, in the fullness of time. How long is too long before God comes through? Well, it says Jesus came at just the right time. I'm sure for people who were struggling and needing him prior, they think, well, boy, it would have been nice here or there. But here's the thing I want you to tell yourself, because believe me, every human I know goes through this. If you're a follower of Christ and you're trying to live in this trust where the timing just doesn't seem to work the way you would want it to, God's timing is perfect. I know it's almost a cliche, but please remind yourself because we either wait in hope of God's fulfillment or we begin to act outside his purpose. We read this morning Psalm 130. It says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. These were people on the, probably in Jerusalem on the sentry waiting for that morning sun to come up, probably priests so they could do the morning sacrifices. They were waiting just to see the first glimmer of light and hope so they could do that. And, and, and the response of the psalmist is, I wait for God to come through like that. As sure as I know the sun's coming up, I know God's coming. But sometimes the night seems so doggone long. 25 years is a long time to feel like your light hasn't risen. So Sarai decides, okay, maybe God's way is going to be what would have been, again, culturally acceptable for them. It sounds so strange to our ears to have a servant be given to your husband and become a wife, and it's, it, it's, but I'm not saying it's God's, like, that's what he ordains now, but it was culturally, you can read in literature of that time that that, that practice was done. And so, in some way, Sarah's idea was, well, it's going to come out of Abraham. We haven't had a child and, and God's promise, so, so we're going to work within the cultural context. We're going to see God's promise come about. And rather than focusing on the fact of God's said, and I believe he can, she said, God said, but he must have either forgotten or his character is in doubt. And what we see is this trajectory. What we're going to find is, is the, all that's going to fall out because of that in their family and in their lives. So let's see what happens in the story. 
Behold, now the Lord's prevented me from having children. Verse 3, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. He abdicated his position to say no. Abram could have said no. God has said we're not going to do it that way. Abram's not commended for in, this, in this case for listening to her because she was not operating out of faith. And he listened. So after he'd lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. He went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, Hagar, she felt that she was blessed because that's culturally they would have seen that having children as, oh, God's blessed me. And so what did she do? What did Hagar do? She looked with contempt upon her mistress. There's enough sin to go around here to share with everybody. The hero of the story is not the humans in Genesis, by the way. Sometimes Abram's a man of great faith, but the hero of this story and, and who Genesis points to is the great hero of the whole Bible. We're going to see that as well. So Hagar looks at Sarai with contempt. Sarai says to Abram, now she takes the blame on Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servants your embrace, and they cleaned up the language. This is, if you read the Hebrew in this, it's, it's, um, it's R-rated at least. It's, she's angry, and she is, um, there's nothing pretty. It's not very raw in this. When uh, I gave my servant to your embrace, when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Behold, your servant's in your power, Abram says. Do as you please. Again, abdicating. Sarai dealt harshly with her. Again, abused her in some way. Victimizes Hagar, and Hagar fled, Hagar fled from her, from Sarai. Can I tell you something? Uh, point two of this, we have number, number one point in this is that you can see the waiting period either as God's ready to be faithful and we wait with hope in his word or we decide to help God out and to make circumstances match. Point two is this. Can you, can you notice in all this narrative someone is really not mentioned? Do you see any, any mention of what do you think God's doing in this? And again, I'm not reading from silence. I'm not saying that's necessarily the major point of this. But can I say that throughout the Psalms, we have people who say, like in Psalm um, 136, which is the repeat of that phrase, his love endures forever. We have the psalmist saying, he remembered me in my lowest state when I was nothing. And then the phrase, his love endures forever. And in every time of these many, many verses, each time he says, whether I'm in good shape or in bad shape, God's love endures forever. We have no sense that any of, of the people who should have been asking, God, where are you in this? What shall we do? Do we wait further? Do we wait less? Do you want us to act now? When they did that before, do you remember in the chapter before, Abram goes and says, God, how shall these things be? And God answered. Do you realize that God actually answers when you ask? The timing of the answer may not be what you want, but he is a God who actually gives us when we ask him the answer to our requests. 
But there's no record that they did that. Did they say, Lord, should we act now? Is this your timing? No, no record of it. They got a really good idea in their mind. This works. It's coming out of Abraham. Well, check the boxes. It's coming out of Abraham's body. It's culturally acceptable. Let's check the... When you begin to check your boxes and it makes really good sense to you, but you haven't really seen if God's in this at all, be careful. We are incredibly good as humans at justifying almost anything. When I look back at my life, the things I justified at times of what seemed to be right, people do what's right in their own eyes all the time. And this is why this word and the Lord's wisdom stands as a marker and a boundary when we and my heart and our culture begin to say, well, I, I see things now that I never saw before. Be careful. Number three, who's the hero of this story? Hagar, victimized and abused, even though not righteous in all her ways, she's kicked out, she's powerless, and we find that she's pregnant, and she's left basically in the wilderness. She's headed back, sure, is on the way back to Egypt. She was probably someone who was given to Abraham when he was down with Pharaoh prior, when he lied about not being the wife, Sarai's wife, another you know, brilliant, brilliant move. The angel of the Lord, in verse 7, found Hagar by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? Okay. Some people feel this was a theophany, actual appearance of God himself, just the way it's responded. Some people feel like it's an angel representing God. It doesn't really matter. This is, an, this is someone speaking on behalf of God Almighty. Can I? Sometimes God asks questions he already knows the answer to. Do you think he didn't know where she came from and where she was going? When God does that, when those kind of questions, I think it must not be God who needs to know the answer. It's Hagar. Good questions to ask. Where have I come from and where am I going? Now, did she have all the answers? She was kicked out. She didn't go on her own accord. But I think what God is trying to do, what this angel or, or God himself is trying to do in speaking here is trying to say this, I know where you've come from and I know where you're going, but you don't. She didn't. I mean, she didn't know where she was headed, I, I guess. Maybe she's trying to get back home or whatever, but she was in desperate straits. Can I say that this is the same presence of the same God who just a chapter before we saw last week how Abram, the powerful person in that clan, was brought to his knees with dread of the darkness because, remember, the animals were split in half, and we saw this powerful image of this torch and this smoking pot, and, and Abram is just laid low, and he's just filled with the dread of the awe of God. And here this powerless slave girl the tenderness of a God who says, I know where you're going. I know where you've been. I haven't forgotten you. Let's read on. She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, 
well, get on out of there and go down to Egypt. I mean, you got every right to just leave that camp. Is that what it says? It's not advice that necessarily I would think on the face of it would be something she might be that happy to hear about. Return to your mistress and submit to her. I'm telling you, if I was writing the Bible, that is not the advice I would have given. Saying, you, you have a just case. God sometimes has us do things. I don't know if any of you have ever had to submit to any authority in your life that you thought was eensy-beensy bit wrong. <laughs> but if you haven't yet, just wait. If you haven't had a teacher or a parent, a spouse, a boss, government authority that you thought, I have to submit to him, to her? Hard lesson sometimes, but God operates through authority. And ultimately, you and I are sometimes not going to think God knows what he's talking about, but he says, if you submit to me and my ways, you'll be blessed. Now, we obviously, you have to contextualize things. There are times where, I'm not saying this is, you know, there's a carte blanche for anything or anything, but too often I think we say we're in charge, and if we see authority as not right, then it gives me license to do whatever I want to do. And I think this is, it was for her this time, but I, I, am, I was struck by reading that, his word. Why? Let me ask you this. Why? Because I want you to be abused again? Is that why I want you to go back? Let's see why the Lord says, the angel of the Lord says, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. Remember the blessing that God has already promised through Isaac is that it's going to be stars in the sky, grains of sand. I'm going to bless through this promised child. Now, it doesn't make Hagar the promised woman of promise. We know that Sarai and Isaac coming 15 years from now is going to be the the way that the promise of God is going to operate. It doesn't mean, however, that God doesn't want to speak blessing on one who turns to them. Hagar looks and says, verse 11, after, after uh, the angel prophesies over her that with her pregnancy and bearing a son and what his name will be and what sort of person he'll be, in verse 13, Hagar says, she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Now, remember, this is an Egyptian woman. She would have come from that culture and that uh, way of worship and, and uh, polygamy and, and uh, Egyptian gods. They, you know, she might have assimilated to some extent, but there's no sense up until this point. But she has an encounter with the true God. And he, she calls him the God who sees. Elroy. I don't know about you, but there's a great comfort to me when I wonder if God's there sometimes. Knowing he is the God who sees and who cares. 
and who's the God of 25 years of waiting just as much as he's the God of that second. Truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. I don't know that she physically saw the Lord, but she perceived a God with whom she interacted. And she, it, at this well, is called the well of the God who sees. And then Hagar returns and she bears Abram, the son, Ishmael. A couple of chapters, we won't spend a lot of time in it, but in a couple of chapters we're going to see that there's another in this dysfunctional family of promise that Hagar and Ishmael both are cast out and sent out into the desert again. And once again, God is going to respond to the cries of this woman and at that point of the child and is going to respond and restore once again. And God does this over and over again in Scripture because Genesis is not a story about great people who always do great things. It's about a great God who rescues, saves, and ministers to people who sometimes do well and sometimes don't. There's going to be another son whose cries won't be answered, who's going to be asking God, why have you forsaken me and left me? And this time, though this son deserved to be rescued, the same father is going to say, I can't rescue you because my justice demands that someone take the punishment. And Jesus, submitting himself to the will of the Father, says, not my will, but yours be done. And that for all of us as sons and daughters who deserve to be cast out, we get to receive the reward that the son who was cast out got that he didn't deserve. I'm thankful that the people in Genesis are people I can relate to. They're people full of mixed bags. Faith sometimes and other times fallen short. Because it tells me the God who sees is not a God who's going to throw me out the door. But he's a God who sees and says, my son will stand in your stead. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his followers and he said, this is my body, it's broken for you. Whenever you eat this, do it in remembrance that I died for you. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup of wine. When he'd given thanks, he gave it to them. He said, drink this, every one of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. It is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And as often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. 
So when we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we're proclaiming the death of the Lord Jesus until he comes. What this tells us is we can't do it on our own. You can't be good enough to get to God. You can't be faithful enough. And that's great news. Because it's, the reality is his mercy and his death is sufficient for all who will believe in him and call upon him. So I invite you to come to the table of the Lord. You don't have to be a member of Living Hope, but you do have to trust in Jesus Christ and you do have to believe that he's sufficient. And come and take a wafer and dip it in the wine and receive from him the mercy and the grace that he so freely offers. If you have anything in your life, the Bible commits, commends to us that if you've got sin, that you have not confessed, that you're hiding from God, don't come to the communion table until you've confessed it. Because we want to make sure that we're not playing games here. This isn't some sort of ritual that, oh, well, it really doesn't matter. I mean, sin, what's that anyway? You're not ready for the table then. This is serious business because you are saying, you're affirming that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he saves you. That in taking this, you are saying, this, his body and his blood, I needed in my life. And so if you're willing to come, be willing to come clean. And when you do that, come, not perfect. If you're broken, if you're hurting, things are not going well, run to the table. There'll be people available after you take the communion elements. There'll be people available on this side and that to just pray with you if you want to, just to, just to join you in whatever's going on in your life. We want to worship and honor the true son cast out and ultimately killed, but resurrected for us. Lord Jesus, we know these are the gifts of God and they're for the people of God, so we take them with humble thanksgiving for the goodness you show. And Lord, let us come to this table understanding you are the host, freely offering yourself to us, your children. We love you. We need you. And only you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.